Hey everyone, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you're joining me from. My name is Barton Siever. I'm so thrilled to have you as part of our giant, big, wonderful Ruby family. Thanks for joining us today, and any of you who joined before, thanks for returning to us. As I said, my name is Barton Siever. I'm a chef and author. I live here on the ragged, jagged, delicious coast of Maine with my incredible wife and two little boys uh, on a little saltwater farm, which is gorgeous today in the famous New England autumn. Uh, living up to all that it should be it's uh it's just absolutely gorgeous out back and well everywhere in the world right now so yeah i hope that you are in a beautiful autumn place with the colors of the season alive and well so we got our first pumpkins and put them out there i've got one little boy who's halloween crazy uh, which is just fun and it's fun the way that little children orient their worlds around uh well, I guess maybe sugar and gifts, right? <laughs> Holidays and birthdays and all those things. But um, hey, it's fun nonetheless. It's always fun to celebrate things. And that's one of the things I want to start off with. Every Any of you who joined me before know that I like to start off all of these little events with <clears throat> a moment of gratitude because gra gratitude and love are the most important ingredients in any recipe you will ever make. And being able to cook for others, as I assume you're interested in by the fact that you're here with us, uh, well, it's a great kindness. It's a blessing that we we're able to do that. So taking a moment to be grateful for something whenever you start a recipe, start cooking for others is a great way to really ground yourself in what you're doing. And uh, yeah, well, today I'm grateful for autumn colors. I've got this uh, one incredible sugar maple tree at the back of my property that uh, I had to take down a whole bunch of uh, giant white pines that, um, well, they were suddenly in a direct wind corridor due to a number of trees being taken down on another property. And uh, they started tumbling because well, their root systems are not very deep. And so I had to cut down a bunch of them that were just in this wind corridor. And it revealed this one maple tree that had spent probably 40 years growing in all of these sort of converted, coverted ways, uh, I should say, like through the boughs of the pines, uh, just trying to make its way to sunlight. And now that it is fully revealed, it is this glorious skeletal structure of, of just everything. It doesn't look like any other tree I've ever seen. And it's beautiful. And it's right centered in the back of my property. And it is turning the most gorgeous hues of red and orange at the moment. So I like looking at it. So for that, I am grateful. Anyway, I hope you'll take a moment to decide something you're grateful for. Say it out to the world because it'll make everybody better for it. So let's dive into some questions here. We have just a few today, so um, we'll get through these. And please do throw in any questions about anything. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, on any particular topic here, but uh, we're game for anything. So from Susan M. Hi, friend. Nice to have you on. What are your favorite vegetables to grill on an outdoor grill? Do I have any preparation tips and do you have any finishing sauces or spices I like to use? Great question and one par for the season, of course. Uh, so favorite vegetables on the grill? Uh, I am a, a huge fan of grilling. Um, I wrote a whole cookbook on grilling uh, called Where There's Smoke, which actually is my favorite of all the books of, of the eight books that I've written. Um, I just I was just really in a good spot culinarily when I wrote that book. Uh, and most of that book is actually about vegetables. So there's a lot in there. Uh, but things I like, uh, well, vegetables of the season are always best to me. And right now the seasons of cooking, this, this is when cooking is the best to me uh, because you still have some of the late summer holdovers. I mean, even here in Maine, I found uh, I was preparing my gardens for my yards for uh, for garlic, planting my next row of garlics. 
and uh, I found a couple of zucchinis still hiding out. Uh, so we're still having zucchini even in Maine. Uh, still have some tomatoes coming in, but we've also, of course, got the butternut squash and uh, the robust greens and kale. And I found a head of broccoli hiding out in the yard as well. Leeks are coming in, um, really coming in sweet. We're about to have our first frost, and so the, the flavor of all these vegetables is going to change on the farm and pull those in. I can't wait for that. So one of my favorites is leeks on the grill, especially if you can find tender, smaller leeks, uh, but larger leeks work just as fine. Uh, take off a couple of the outer uh, layers uh, that get a little more um, fibrous, a little more chewy. Take off those, chop them up, saute those, anything, you know, simmer those with some water on the, on the stovetop, and they're absolutely delicious. Simmer them in cream for creamed leeks, even the leek greens up at the top, it works really well. Uh, but those tender inner stalks are perfect on the grill, especially when, when served with a romesco sauce which is a great sauce to make on the grill. Romesco is the sauce that I would recommend. You sort of, you asked about uh, any particular sauces that I would recommend. So I'll get back to a couple other vegetables, but sauces, romesco, which is onions, garlic, uh, pepper, uh, bell pepper, tomatoes, uh, bell pepper, tomatoes, bell peppers, and tomatoes. Uh, all of those are typically roasted off, but can be grilled off as well, and then pureed with lots of olive oil and almonds and a little bit of salt to season. And it becomes this richly textured, you can leave it coarsely chunky and uh, if you'd like to, or blend it down to a nice smooth sauce. But that, where the sauce literally is a veg serving of vegetables, uh, is a nice way to get some good healthfulness into your uh, meal there. But the smoky flavors of it are, are so incredible. If you make it inside, drizzle it, drizzle, uh, sprinkle it with a little bit of smoked paprika, sweet smoked paprika, to add that smokiness to it. I make this in large batches, and then I freeze it in little plastic baggies, or about one portion, or one, one usage each, about four portions. Uh, and that's a great sauce to have. Another thing that uh, I like to make in these late summer months, early autumn, uh, I still I don't have any basil left in my yard. It's too cold for that. But if you've still got late season basil or go to a farmer's market, you might be able to find some in warmer climates. Make a giant batch of basil pesto. That freezes up really well. Uh, but that is a wonderful component uh, addition to grilled vegetables. Uh, and the other that I'd say is just a vinaigrette. A great quality vinaigrette. Use a good quality red wine, sherry, white wine, vinegar, uh, a nice olive oil, either one with butteriness to it, uh, like coastal olive oils or something a little bit more spice, such as olive oils that come from inland areas like Tuscany, um, makes a really nice component, especially when maybe there's some mustard seeds in there, whole grain mustard, which is a really great component for grilled veg. So I mentioned I like to grill uh, leeks. I also love grilling onions. I think that's a really wonderful thing, especially red onions. They take smoke and char so very well. Uh, and they also soften considerably uh, and pretty easily, so you can cook them through on a grill. Other things that I really like are grilled uh, hearty greens. So kale, especially lasanata or dinosaur kale, works wonderfully on a grill. Uh, any other greens, such as radicchio, kales, uh, young sort of tender collards would work as well, mustard greens, turnip greens, beet greens, all of these are fantastic on the grill. One thing to note is to leave them in pieces that are large enough to easily work with on the grill. You know, if you cut it all up ahead of time and then throw your salad on the grill, what's going to happen? Yeah, your, your fire is going to eat a nice meal, right? So leave the leaves intact. You don't need to lay them all out. They can be grilled just in a pile as you're sort of turning them as they go. 
let them burn a little bit, but a really great prior technique to grilling is to massage them. Mm -hmm. Yep, massage them with a little bit of olive oil and salt prior to grilling, about 10 minutes. And just a, a gentle sort of rubbing them through uh, with that mixture really helps to begin to break down some of those cellular structures, draw out some of that moisture that's going to help those greens to steam as well as to cook off of it. So you end up with a nice, crunchy, beautiful, well-grilled item. Uh, so that's greens. And then the last thing I'd say for just the season, butternut squash. Other squash, it's a really, really great on the grill. Uh, and I've got two ways to produce those, prepare those for you. One would be to cut them into steaks and lightly steam or simmer them. Um, you can do that in a fortified, in an aromatic broth. Think about simmering them in salted water, maybe with some star anise, some juniper berries, some black peppercorns and bay leaves uh, to give it a nice, really sensual spiciness to it. Not, not spiced, well, spicedness to it. It wouldn't be spicy necessarily. Uh, Simmer those until they're just barely cooked, just barely knife tender, and then dry them off, pat them, drain them, pat them pretty dry, brush them with a little oil, and then put that on top of the grill, get nice grill marks for a steak, something like that. Woo, man, that would be absolutely delicious. Romesco sauce, a nice vinaigrette, and you've got a really nice vegetable center of the plate there. Uh, speaking of cauliflower, steaks grill really nicely. I do like to pre-cook mine a little bit in water. It's just they cook a little bit better on the grill and cook through better and, and avoid some of that chewiness to them. Um, and then the other way to cook uh, winter, winter autumn squash in a grill is if you have a charcoal grill, uh, you can do this on a gas grill too, is I roast whole butternut squashes right down in the embers. Uh, and in doing that, you, you cook them very slowly. It takes about 45 minutes for a typical size butternut squash. Cook them right in the embers, turning them as needed. The outside will burn. Yes, that's kind of the point. Uh, but the inside will take on this incredibly sweet, smoky ridiculousness that's just so wonderful. And I use that uh, to make a butternut squash, roasted butternut squash hummus. Uh, made the same way as you would a, a chickpea hummus uh, with the tahini. I use a little extra olive oil, salt, and lemon juice. But butternut squash can be used as is or with, in addition to chickpeas, half and half. Uh, but that is just a wonderful, wonderful way to put vegetables, uh, to eat vegetables off the grill. All right, Susan, thanks. Appreciate your question. All right. Uh, what are tips for sauteing? This is from Diane T. Thanks for joining. Tips for sauteing without using oil or butter. Also looking for tips on tasty salad dressings without oils. Many thanks. Sure. Uh, so let's with the salad dressings without oils. Uh, there's a number of different creaminesses that you can use. That's not a word, um, but I guess it's understood in this context. So avocados pureed in, uh, labna or yogurts, Greek yogurt in particular, labna, which is yet further strained from Greek yogurt, nice thickness to it. Uh, add richness. They add depth and complexity to vinaigrettes. Uh, or really sort of vinegar-based sauces at this point. Avocados can be pureed, they can be diced up and then shaken in, and it provides somewhat of an emulsion, uh, which gives you that creaminess, but it also adds its own healthful qualities. Uh, you can use uh, binders such as uh, whole grain mustard uh, as well, which is a nice way to add creaminess uh, to a dressing uh, or just body and texture and depth to it uh, without using oils there. So. Uh, the other thing is you would want to probably 
minimize or uh, not go with really extremely <clears throat> acidic vinegars. Uh, so lemon juice is citrus juice is really good. You can soften that somewhat with a mixture of sweet citrus juices, such as orange um, mixed in there to soften some of that acidity. But things like sherry vinegar uh, can be a little bit hard to use because that acidity is so bright, it's so poignant, it's so potent uh, that it kind of calls for that oil or that creaminess to cut that acidity. So sherry vinegar and uh, avocados paired together, absolutely wonderful. But if you're not using that sort of creamy base ingredient to it, uh, look for those lower acid uh, uh, vinegars and stuff. So what are tips for sauteing without using oil or butter? Um, get your, your nice nonstick pan, uh, whether it's a seasoned cast iron or a, a you know, a good nonstick or a cast steel pan, black steel, as I use a lot in my kitchen. Uh, you want to make sure that it's very hot so that you're you're dealing with the same temperatures and maybe a little bit higher because you want to create that separation of ingredients from pan very quickly. And that happens through heat. Uh, if you put, um, must, let's say, mushrooms into a low heat pan, what they're gonna do is before you get any color, you're really gonna steam and steam off all of that moisture that's in them and it's gonna be a slow process. Will it eventually get brown? Yes, it will. <clears throat> but you end up having to cook off all of that moisture before it does. And in that you're losing flavor, you're losing volume and you're losing time. So can it be done? Yes, but if you put them in a nice hot pan, you begin to get some of that sear, some of that Maillard reaction, that caramelization on them before you begin the process of steaming out that moisture. Uh, one other thing to mention is that salt, uh, the addition of salt to any ingredient draws moisture towards the salt. It's a humectant, meaning it draws moisture towards itself or out of that ingredient. As soon as you start drawing moisture out, you start a process of steaming rather than that, that saute on high heat where the colors, colorization happens, coloration happens. Um, so when sauteing without butter or oil, adding that salt in either at the very beginning to intentionally draw out all that moisture so you can get that ingredient dry at which point you then color it or adding it much later on in the cooking process so that you can really get as much color at the outside as possible. So there you go. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you. All right, from Sarah V. Hey, friend. Nice to see you. Chef Barton, I love these talks because I learned so much. Well, we appreciate you coming back to us. Been mostly vegetarian for two years, but nothing pops for a holiday treat. What are your most memorable holiday dishes that others ask for again and again? Thank you. Uh, well, that butternut squash hummus that I just spoke of is is fantastic uh, and a, a really nice way to um, anchor uh, a meal in many ways. And depends on, you know, all the, think about all the, the ways you could use to dip into that, whether it's nice seasoned pita chips, whether it's vegetable chips, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's just a lot you can do with that. Uh, a dish that I served the other night, I uh, actually had a, a sort of an annual harvest feast that we have at our house um, that uh, it does, it, it features a couple of meat uh, items. But the steel, but the star of the show of this was a roasted butternut dish, uh, which was nice cubes of butternut squash. And when I buy butternut, I look for the stockiest, the shaftiest ones that just have that that very long uh, area before the before the bulb or the seed end of it, because that way you get sort of the most uni uh, 
consistent cuts out of it. If you have just this much of the stock and then this much of the bulb, you're going to have a lot of different sized and shaped pieces, right? But if it's that big, then you're going to get a whole lot of nice big cubes out of it. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, and I roasted them off in a high oven and uh, with oil until they were nice and colored on one side. I, I preheated the uh, tray so that I got a nice little bit of color on there. Uh, and then once they were cooled, so just when they're knife tender, I pulled them out. You don't want them falling apart because you're going to end, end up tossing them. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. I tossed them with toasted almonds, cilantro, uh, mint, green onions, and lime juice. And that mixture together uh, was so good that this that dish, which was ostensibly a side dish, ended up stealing the show by far. Um, so that's one that's really nice. It's beautiful. It's colorful. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I also had chili peppers in there. So I had some nice um, Fresno chilies, which are nice and red and have these beautiful, nice pops of these red rings throughout this dish of that golden russet hued uh, roasted squash with all the greens of the herbs, which I used copiously, by the way. Uh, so that was a really fun dish. And it, even though it sort of presents as a side dish, it's gorgeous and beautiful. And if you served it heaped and mounded up and you have a nice rice pilaf on the side of it, brown rice cooked with some, some more almonds or something like that in there for a nice crunch, serve it on the side of that with some stewed beans. Uh, that's a really nice, full, rounded meal. Uh, with a lot of color, a lot of seasonal influence, a lot of pop to it. Uh, that can really be great. Sure, you can do the cauliflower steaks, things like that, that sort of hue more towards that center of the plate aesthetic that uh, um, omnivorous diets uh, tend towards. Um, but when I eat, uh, I like really a lot of components in my, in my meal rather than sort of one big steak. I just I don't dig that. It gets really boring to me, uh, but I understand the aesthetic and, and sort of the celebratory nature of that. So if you're doing something more like that, a nice cauliflower steak uh, or the butternut squash steak, as I uh, explained before, pre-simmered in salted water, heavily salted water with some nice aromatic uh, spices of the season, such as star anise, juniper berries, allspice berries, black peppercorns, bay leaf, maybe a cinnamon stick in there, something like that, um, gives it this really nice, heady, rustic scent to it. Pull that out, pat that dry, throw it under the broiler, saute it until golden brown, throw it on the grill for some smokiness, put a little smoked paprika on there. If you're not outside on the grill, uh, that gives you this really nice center of the plate thing. And then pile it high with herbs, shaved, very thinly shaved shallot and fennel, mint, parsley, tarragon leaves, just in this nice salad on top that itself is crunchy. Throw some crun um, crunchy toasted almonds all around the plate. You got a really nice meal. Cheers, Sarah. Thanks. Appreciate you joining. All right. I'm on the task. This is coming from Kathy M. On the task about roasting vegetables, it was recommended that we use a silicone baking mat and a pan underneath the vegetables as they cook. Is it safe for our health to cook on the bat? Has this stud been studied for safety? So I looked up this question, and thank you, Kathy. I appreciate it. Uh, I looked up this question, and I found a good article on Scientific American uh, about this. And uh, one of the takeaways from that article was that, no, not a lot of science has been done on this. Uh, but there was a sort of lengthy pull quote from a 
a consumer safety advocate who herself had done a lot of research on this, um, just for her own sake, not scientific research, but looked at a lot of the chemicals that are used and, and silicon is actually made from naturally occurring uh, silicon that is found in mostly in, in um, sand. So the chemicals that go to make it up are themselves not toxic. Uh, they're not toxic in water. And they are also the way that silicone reacts is that it doesn't off gas or react with food up until a very, very high temperature, like 482 degrees, I believe was the, was the quote in there. So that it's not even, it's not reacting with the food. Uh, so there's no chemical transference that's happening there. So the pull quote from this, uh, this consumer safety advocate was that she chooses to use silicon uh, mats and uh, pans because she sees no sort of potential for toxicity there. Uh, and another sort of asserting factor here is that they are allowed, silicon is allowed in food service uh, in Europe. And Europe tends to have very much more strict uh, food safety regulations and just consumer safety regulations than, than we do here in this country. So both of those are things to recommend uh, towards the safety of this. So there you go. But check out that article in Scientific American. I just did a, a simple, um, I imagine it's just a simple Google search for that uh, silicone Scientific American safe, you know, safety would bring that right up. So great question. Thanks. And I appreciate you being part of the Ruby family. Hope your classes are going well. Hey, Linda, how are you? What should I consider in shifting my diet from a meat centric to fish centric? Linda, awesome. Well, I very much appreciate that as a uh, mostly pescatarian myself and a seafood evangelist who it's my mission to get more people across all demographics eating more seafood more often. Uh, so I very much appreciate the direction you're going there. Uh, the one thing I would say is that a meat-centric diet to a seafood-centric diet is, uh, at least just in the in the words that you used, uh, not inclusive of what our diets really should be, which is mostly and massively vegetable-centric. Uh, and yes, I believe that we should be eating seafood, small, enjoyable, adequate, sustainable portions of seafood but that our diet should be mostly, of course, vegetables. So I'm not accusing you of anything because your question is just on the surface what it is. Uh, but one of the things that I love about seafood is that it really does beg for really component cooking where you're eating a lot of different things, uh, much more so than uh, meat, which I think tends to just occupy the center of the plate more so than seafood does. So eat your vegetables, eat lots of grains, greens, legumes, pulses, nuts, all the stuff we know we should really eat. Uh, but when shifting over, I would say that shopping is probably the biggest thing. So seafood tends to be a lot more, a lot less shelf stable than does meat. And the typical American that I'm just, may I assume that's where you're joining us from, <clears throat> typical American shops once a week uh, and shops in bulk uh, in that way. And seafood doesn't necessarily always lend itself to that. So one of the things when switching from a meat-centric, I'm able to shop once a week diet to a seafood-centric where fresh fish should be shopped for maybe a couple times a week. Uh, there's certainly a lot of stuff in the fresh case that will last. Things like mussels, things like farmed trout, farmed tilapia, uh, some other options that uh, farmed salmon as well. Uh, where because they are farmed in 
uh, relatively clean environments that the bacterial con content can be very much controlled. So the shelf life per se on like a farmed trout is typically about 24 days. Whoa, right? That, I mean, that's an amazing amount of time. Uh, mussels uh, also are, they can be kept alive because that's how they are bought. They can be kept alive in a refrigerator just by draping them with a moist uh, paper towel, keeping them very cold in a bowl, as well as draining the bowl of any moisture that does uh, collect at the bottom. Uh, and you can keep them in your, in your fridge for five, six, seven days. Uh, the other thing that I would recommend towards you is there's a lot of really great seafood not in the fresh case, meaning over in the canned aisle, canned pink salmon cakes, canned red salmon cakes, salmon from Alaska is absolutely amazing, sustainable, delicious, incredibly healthful for us. Uh, canned mackerel, canned sardines, canned mussels, oysters, shrimp, clams. I mean, th these are all wonderful, wonderful options that I have quite a lot of. Uh, you can see this stack of smoked anchovies behind me that I use uh, as a starter in so many vegetable dishes that I make. Uh, I've got a can of sardines and tuna and mackerels over here, and then I've got some more up top, and then I've got some more over here. I, I literally have five, one, two, three, four, I have five different piles of canned fish just behind me alone. Um, and I would recommend also that... Uh, Check out my friends at Freshe. This is a really wonderful uh, canned product that I actually helped, uh, we, my partner Katie and I helped uh, design the recipes for these. They're not inexpensive, but they are wonderful. They're just a couple of different, uh, so this is a Thai sriracha with tuna, as wild tuna, sweet and sour beans, peanuts, leafy greens, and a spicy Asian sauce. There's a Provencal nichoise with roasted peppers, tuna, herbs, olives tuna, butternut squash, Sicilian caponata, and Aztec ensalada with black beans and peppers and corn. Um, <clears throat> I don't have any financial interest in these, so I'm just telling you I like these because, well, I made them, and I really like them, and, well, they're really convenient as well. So think about that in terms of uh, snacks and stuff like that, packing lunches. Of course, you have the canned, uh, canned salmon, canned tuna sandwiches, melts, etc., uh, but then also over to the freezer section. The freezer section is uh, no longer where seafood went to die, which is where is what it was you know, decades ago. But recent technology advances uh, have really yielded the fact that I believe now that uh, really high quality frozen seafood, and I don't mean expensive here, I mean quality pink salmon, sockeye salmon from Alaska, I mean wild Alaska pollock, talking about Pacific Cod, Haddock, etc. I mean, all of our favorites are in the freezer aisle as well. And frozen seafood now can be frozen so fresh, right at near or at the point of capture. Um, this has great environmental benefits. It has great benefits for the fishermen, as well as seafood becomes a convenience protein, right? You don't have to buy it and then use it on that day or very rapidly thereafter. You can pull it out the morning of Put it in your fridge and with just that amount of planning you've got great quality seafood straight from the freezer so that's the biggest thing i would say is the impediment from switching to a meat centric to a seafood centric diet there is that shopping aspect but we've gone through a number of those uh yeah there you go great question thank you from lisa hi there 
does our quote signature dish have to be something cooked or can it be something composed like a salad? Um, I'm not exactly sure what you're what you're referring to. I imagine this is 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 within the Ruby curriculum. Uh, I would imagine that the signature dish just has to be something that shows uh, cooking methods, composition, and techniques. So a signature dish of a tossed green salad would not necessarily cut it because you're not really showing a whole lot of technique and uh, versatility there. But if you were doing, say, a salad, a nichoise salad, where you are cooking the vegetables each separately, you are dressing them, creating a sauce, you are maybe cooking some tuna or cooking a piece of salmon, etc. Something like that, a composed salad, which really does show different culinary technical capabilities, uh, that would be, uh, in my mind, uh, sufficient, um, so long as it, it really does show that. So thanks for your question, appreciate it. Hey, Ruth C. Nice to see you. Three tofu questions. What are the best uh, spices roasting extra firm tofu? Okay, how long should tofu be marinated for best results? And at what temperature do I roast tofu? All right. Uh, what are the best spices for roasting tofu? I don't know about best, but you, because you can take this in any direction you want to. Uh, think about a, a tofu nichoise salad. You know, nice big hearty greens with simmered green beans and potatoes roasted red peppers and a piece of extra firm tofu that you have firm tofu that you've seasoned with herb de Provence and then drizzled with a little olive oil and thrown under the mic, uh, under the broiler. Wow. That's awesome. That's very different than uh, Chinese five spice roasted tofu, etc. So it really sort of hues more to the cuisine and the other ingredients that you're pairing with it in that dish that you're making. Uh, but a combination that I particularly love is uh, smoked sweet paprika, cumin, and coriander, uh, possibly with a little fennel seeds in there. Uh, that combination to me is both Iberian, so sort of northern Mediterranean, but it's also southern Mediterranean as well. Uh, you get a lot of sort of Moroccan, Tunisian sort of flavors in that as well, so it can really kind of carry in multiple directions. Um, so... That's what I'd say there. So those three, so an herb de Provence, a Chinese five spice, or sort of a uh, pan Mediterranean mixture of cumin, coriander, fennel seeds, and smoked sweet paprika. Cheers. There you go on that. And your last question. Oh, no. Uh, next one was uh, how long should tofu be marinated for best results? Uh, I would say at least 20 minutes, probably preferably an hour, uh, but as much as overnight. Marinades uh, do gradually soak their way in. If you have salt in the marinade, that's really what's going to draw flavors and really combine them and also desiccate that tofu a little bit and firm it up against that marinade. So I would say as little as 20 minutes, preferably an hour, as much as overnight. There's no real benefit for doing it longer than that, I can't see. And then what temperature do I roast tofu at? Thank you. Uh, so I would do a 350 on this. Uh, I, I would tend to get a pan pretty hot, a roasting pan, and then get that hot, put it in there so you get some nice color on it, and then roast it at 350 so it's colored through, or warmed through, but also colored and a little bit crisped on one side. You can do that with a saute pan. Anything that's oven safe is sort of that saute, that sort of pan roast method that I prefer rather than just throw it in and roast it till 
the top through. Uh, because especially if you're cooking slabs of tofu, sort of individual portions, before you get any color, uh, you're going to start really drying it out uh, in, in the oven at that temperature. So I would maybe consider broiling it on high to get color and, or 350 with a hot pan to get a little color. So there you go. Cheers, Ruth. Appreciate you. From Sarah Oh, what is the best sub sugar substitute and why? And what's the best oil substitute and why? Um, those are big questions and big answers that are not, I can't really necessarily give you an acute best answer on this. It depends on what you are making. So I am not a baker. I don't necessarily, I don't understand nearly as well as someone like our um, dear friend Fran uh, here as the part of the Ruby family understands baking and sugar substitutions. Uh, my favorite, I live in Maine um, and I just happen to have some right in front of me, Maine maple syrup. Why? Uh, because I make my own and it smells really smoky, sweet, incredible because I do it outside on an open fire in February when it's wonderful to have a reason to be outside. So I put maple syrup on just about everything. Uh, I don't really use much sugar. I use that uh, maple syrup and honey to play that same role in that they add a lot of flavor uh, to whatever you're substituting it uh, sugar for. So agave is similar. So that you're really adding that, that poignant, potent flavor of those ingredients. So just be mindful of that. Uh, but those are my top three and really what I use. So uh, the next question is, what is the best substitute for oil and vinaigrette? So I went over this a little bit. So mustard can add both uh, piquancy, a little spice to it, but also a creaminess to, thing, to, to sauces and vinaigrettes, uh, pureed avocados, yogurt, labna, Things like that are really great substitutes. Cheers. There you go. Um, also, fruit purees can be a very good substitute as well, uh, in that they add body and texture and help to uh, sort of carry flavors through. All right. Ooh. Okay. Oh, we did get a bunch of questions. This is great. Uh, from Kathy again. Are there any disadvantages to cooking vegetables in the microwave? I typically add a couple tablespoons to water to the baking dish with the vegetables and cook until crisp tender, and then drain the water out and add herbs. Uh, there is some thought that uh, cooking vegetable, cooking things in microwaves uh, depletes their nutritional content. I don't know about that. I would urge you to do a simple Google search for that and maybe uh, rely on reliable uh, sources, if you would. So not, uh, you know, whatever paid advertisement site comes up that has clickbait that says vegetables in the microwave will kill you. Like, yes, you know what? It's definitely not true. And uh, sounds like you're trying to get me to click on your website. So uh, I would stick to uh, good web sources. So look for maybe Cooks Illustrated. Uh, New York Times has a great stuff on that. Uh, Food Lab might have something good on that to, to share. Uh, I'm sorry that I don't have the, the science off the top of my head on this. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, if cooking vegetables that way is very easy for you and that you are obviously skilled at and have figured out over the years, um, well, if that gets you to put a lot of vegetables on your plate, that's a good thing. I'm going to say universally, that is a good thing. So uh, Keep eating your vegetables, microwave or not, and I'm sorry to send you off into the wilds of the internet to, to do some research, but I hope those sites might add uh, some clarity for you. 
Cheers. All right. From Mitch. Hey, buddy. When cooking beans and they're not needed for an hour or so after they're done, is it better to leave them in their cooking liquid while waiting or to drain them and let them wait absent the cooking liquid? <laughs> Interesting question. Uh, Mitch, I would say it's always, always better to leave them in a cooking liquid. That way, not only do the beans stay moist, uh, they uh, continue to react to the cooking liquid uh, and the cooking liquid itself takes on a lot more of their flavor. Uh, I think just the whole dish comes more into focus and all those flavors get married together, especially if you've been simmering your beans with carrot, celery, and onion or a piece of kelp in there. Yes, dried seaweed, some bay leaves, etc. That flavor transference process is going to continue to happen. Um, and if the dish that you're that your the beans are called for in requires them to be very dry, say as if you're roasting them, trying to crisp them, et cetera, then yes, I would say drain them off. But if this is just, uh, you know, you're making a hummus or something or adding them to a stew or otherwise mixing them in where a little bit of moisture is fine, even desirable, uh, absolutely leave them in the liquid throughout their storage process uh, for the best quality results. Cheers. Thanks, buddy. All right, another one from Mitch. What's the best way to roast garlic? Suggestions for use. Thanks. Well, Mitch, you come to a garlic guy to ask that question. Uh, there's a couple of ways to roast garlic, and uh, I'm not sure that any of them are bad uh, or necessarily better than another, but they all have sort of different characteristics and thus different reasons why I do it. So the first way is... Um, if you're just roasting a single head of garlic, uh, and this is a very small little head that we had a drought this year on my garlic farm. So a lot of my heads turned out uh, pretty small. If you're just doing one head of garlic for one recipe and that's all you're needing. So wrap this up in a double layer of tin foil, throw it in the oven at 325 for about an hour, hour and a half or so. You can drizzle it with a little bit of oil first or throw in a, just a sprinkling of water. I don't think that's necessary unless your garlic is very dry and old. You want to maintain that moisture in there, but I live on a garlic farm. I have a lot of garlic. It's always very fresh and stored perfectly. So this the garlic that I have is very moist, so I don't add anything to it. So that's the way I would just roast one clove. Uh, if I'm doing a bunch of them, Say if I'm making a stew, something like a cassoulet style dish uh, where I want a bunch of gar roasted garlic, but I also want to add some flavor to it, such as like a red wine. So I will use a baking dish such as this. This is a little cocotte, shallow cocotte. This is a stalled one. I'll throw in a number of peeled cloves and going backwards here. Uh, when you wrap this single clove in foil, you do not need to uh, peel it. Uh, the cloves ahead of time. It's just simply unnecessary. Uh, it's very, very easy to work with the garlic once it's roasted. Cut it in half and just squeeze them out or just squeeze them out as is. It should work. Uh, when I do it <coughs> in a cocotte, something like this, I will peel the cloves and I'll put them in here and I will throw in maybe a half cup of red wine and I'll throw in maybe a stick of butter and maybe even some peeled shallots as well. Put the top on and throw the whole thing in the oven for about at about 300 degrees for about two hours. And what this does is it 
slowly reduces that red wine and the juices from the garlic and the shallots that come out into this thick, rich, unctuous syrup. Uh, while the butter sort of protects all of this, you could use olive oil instead. Uh, protects all of that, helps keep that moisture from drying out completely, as well as sort of simmers those garlic and shallots down into this really nutty richness uh, roasted cloves. So that's another way to do it. And then uh, the stovetop method is when you take whole uh, peeled garlic cloves and submerge them in oil. And I would use a neutral olive oil or a very mildly flavored oil, such as like a bulk extra virgin olive oil, nothing with like all that spice and character. Uh, submerge them in the oil and then bring it to the lowest of simmers and just sit back and wait until your house smells so good. So good. The advantage to doing it that way is that then you have roasted garlic oil. And this is a good thing. You have quite a bit of it because it's hard to make in small, small quantities. Uh, you're probably talking about three heads of garlic is probably the minimum you would want to do. But then you have that and you can keep that in your refrigerator uncovered. Uh, you don't want to introduce any botulism concerns. So definitely don't process it or cover it. Put it in an anaerobic environment. Just leave it uh, loosely covered so that it has some airflow in there. Uh, and that'll keep in your fridge for a month or so, beware. If you keep it really uncovered, a lot of other things in your fridge will start to smell and taste like roasted garlic. Uh, but in the cooler seasons, cooler weather as we have here in Maine, most of the year I would keep it up just on the uh, on the countertop as I use it up quickly. So three different ways of roasting garlic. There's one uh, and you asked for suggestions and uses. Blend it into butter and just have that as sort of a finishing sauce to you know, drape a little bit of it over uh, some Microwave vegetables if you want to. Uh, whatever else, puree it into a sauce, puree it into a vinaigrette to toss over roasted vegetables. Uh, so a little bit of mustard, red wine vinegar, some olive oil, and some pureed cloves of garlic. Ooh, man, that'd be fantastic. Drizzled over roasted autumn vegetables and things like broccoli, heads of broccoli in the oven. Nice and crisp. So lots of ways to use roast garlic. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate you. All right. Uh... Hey there, Marcy. Happy, happy fall to you as well. Looking for inspiration in using more sardines, especially for the sardine hesitant. All right. Um, so the first thing is to buy good sardines. Uh, there's not necessarily, I would say, bad sardines out there on the market, but there are going to be sardines that you are going to like better than others. <coughs> Excuse me. So... The brand that I use that I really love is Crown Prince. Uh, it's and I use the two-layer bristling smoked sardines. You know, I'm just going to run to the other room and grab that. Just to show you, my pantry is actually. opened a can of sardines somehow on my way here. So uh, the ones that I was talking about, the King, uh, not Crown Prince, King Oscar brand. Um, these are wild-caught sardines. All sardines are wild-caught. Two layers in finest bristling uh, in extra virgin olive oil. So a couple of things to think about here. So uh, packed in oil, I like better than not. Why? Because the water that thing uh, canned seafood is packed in is pretty much useless to me. 
but the oil is not. The oil is wonderful. <clears throat> it is chock full of flavor and nutrition, uh, and I use it in vinaigrettes. I use it in sauces. You can use it in anything, um, and it really carries a huge amount of flavor with it, and I really like that. So I always go with oil pack. Uh, with sardines, I like smaller ones. Why? Uh, I think their flavor is a little bit more mild, uh, but also they're just easier to eat. Okay. Uh, they're also, uh, they come with the bones in, and that is a good thing for the nutrition of them. The bioaccessibility of the calcium that is in those bones is, um, is full. So you're really getting huge nutrition out of them. Uh, so I, I like those smaller ones and brands like Riga Gold, which I believe is, uh, please go from Yugoslavia. Um, Latvia. Yeah. Uh, so those come from Latvia, which I really like. Uh, and then the King Oscar ones uh, are Norway, maybe? I can't remember. Anyway, uh, they... Poland. They're really good uh, because they, they use what I think, what I consider to be the same species of fish uh, year-round. So sardines, much like anchovies, uh, due to World Trade Organization... Uh, uh, you can pack any one of 13 different species of fish as and sell them as sardines. Why? Because they all pretty much look and taste alike and are very similar. And the term sardines has come to be a sort of global marketing term for oily, small oily fish packed in a similar manner. So brands like this tend to use one species of fish, which is a very it's a more mild flavor to it. And by mild, I'm still mean, it's still very sardiney, which I really like. Uh, but the, the quality of fish that they use and the packing procedures they use is just what I prefer. So uh, there you go. And in terms of uses, uh, eat them with other things that you love. There's a great way to do it. Like for me, hot sauce. I really love hot sauce. So you know what I do? I open a can of sardines and I put a lot of hot sauce in it and then I eat it. <laughs> that is delicious. Uh, do you really like late summer, early autumn, thick slices of beefsteak tomatoes? Great. Shave up some fennel or make a nice little mustard vinaigrette, whole grain mustard with vinaigrette with the oil that comes out of this, then flake the sardines right over top of that. Man, those are going to be delicious. There, there's a number of different ways, but really uh, think about other ingredients that you really like and sardines paired with that is a great way to introduce them rather than trying to make sardines the center of the plate. Uh, until you really get to like them as I do. So there you go. Thanks. I hope that helps. All right. Next question. Hey, Michelle. I see a, how to turn my plant-based cooking passion into a business without having access to a commercial kitchen. Interesting. I've done some classes and some meal prep in my kitchen, but can't make a living from that. Not able to invest in a commercial space. So Nicole, uh, I'm sorry, Michelle, I'm not sure where you are, but uh, I would ask you to Google uh, starter kitchens or incubator kitchens. <coughs> it's a recent trend in the past couple, I'd say really decade, decade plus, where uh, kitchens are made available on a per event or sort of per diem basis for people just such as yourselves or fledgling uh processed food companies say it's a two women that want to make a, a line of salsa uh, that they're just getting started off and 
don't have the ability to invest in a permanent space, <coughs> etc. Uh, some and this a lot of these kitchens as well uh, are helped have helped to fuel and also have been fueled themselves by the rise in food trucks that need a commissary kitchen space. Oftentimes these well I, I think <coughs> excuse me by law these kitchens are uh, health code approved. Uh, and so you, you have some umbrella coverage from that uh, that you can basically have as assurance as you go out and uh, sell products. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. So starter kitchen or incubator kitchen is something I would look into. Cheers. All right. From Mitch. Hey, buddy again. Excuse me. Oh, I'm still getting over COVID, so. But I think this cough is more just because I'm talking too much. But apparently, people like Mitch appreciate that I'm talking so much. Thanks, Jeff Seaver, for your deep and practical knowledge. You are so very welcome, Mitch. I appreciate you joining this. I learned a lot from your talks. Could you take us through, say, a week of my breakfast? I'm stuck on an oatmeal or a muesli. <coughs> sure. Uh, so I learned a lot uh, about breakfast from a book called the, uh, the Whole Foods Kitchen. Amy Chapman, uh, I think, has some of the best ideas for breakfasts. And it's a lot of muesli style things, uh, but a lot of dishes that are soaked overnight, like a muesli would be, but that are multiple, multiple, multiple variations and different nut milks, different flavored nut milks. Uh, all sorts of different things. I, I was so impressed with that book, At Home in the Whole Foods Kitchen, or The Whole Foods Kitchen is the book that I, I really, really love. Uh, her first one, Amy Chapman. <coughs> uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I fell for uh, one of those Instagram ads. I don't spend much time on social media, uh, but I did, I did fall for sort of one of those Silicon Valley tech bro. I'm not going to eat any real food. I can just subsist on superfood shakes. Born in the jungle. Literally, it says born in the jungle on the back. How silly am I? Anyway, I think they're delicious. These are Kachava brand. Uh, I, listen, I got a two-year-old. I got a six-year-old. I've got kindergarten. I've got daycare. Uh, I have a work day that starts immediately <clears throat> after I drop them off because I have to be home when they get home and thus my work day is curtailed on the backside. So I have a lot to do in the mornings and a lot, you know, principal parents here and I love it that way. So a shake like that <coughs> is uh, I reach for that more times than I would care to admit. But uh, I also do oatmeal. It's, it's what I have, uh, and be perfectly honest with you, I cook a couple of days worth of oatmeal and I just leave it in the pan. And to be perfectly honest with you, I leave that pan on the stove. I won't do it for three days, I'll do it for two days. And uh, because I'm gonna bring it back to a boil the next day and it's already made. Uh, so I am not suggesting this, that Ruby is not telling you to leave food on your stove for a couple of days and keep eating it. I'm just giving you an anecdotal talk about what I actually do in life because you know what I live in reality and whatever it is that allows you to get through and survive reality is deeply okay 
That's how it is, right? We should normalize parents surviving because that's what it is with joy and all of that. Uh, but other things that um, I, I really do like is uh, we, we do have a lot of fresh fruit around and that is to me, it's a really easy way. It's really easy to fall into the sugar trap at breakfast because you're hungry. And when we're, when the body is hungry, it's most susceptible to desire for sugars, which is the fastest, easiest, cheapest form of calories. Right. And so I find that the sugar trap in the mornings is when it's the hardest because you, it just, it's so easy <clears throat> as well as the world wants to sell you sugary things for breakfast. Uh, so having fresh fruit around is a really, it, just having that apple to pick up, having those strawberries there, some grapes, <coughs> excuse me, is a really good way to, for me to buy some time in order to get to the better, more healthful stuff. So there you go, Mitch. That's, uh, that's the reality of what I've got going on here. All right, from Nisia. Hi, I hope I got that pronouncing right. Squash hummus sounds wonderful, but I couldn't, I don't have a grill. Can I roast whole winter squash? Sure you can. It doesn't even have to be whole. So uh, roasting it indoors, I don't think you're, I just cut the butternut squash directly in half lengthwise is absolutely wonderful. Put it uh, cut side down on a sheet tray. You're absolutely good to go. Uh, I would even put a little bit of water in the bottom of the roasting pan as that will help it steam through as well as protect your baking pan a little bit as well especially if you're using like a tin baking pan something like that um, help it from getting burned or scorched so you get 100 percent yield out of it but sure uh, when roasting things i do i would prick the skin just a little bit a that helps uh, especially if you're roasting something whole because uh, you don't want it to cook unevenly or you want to give an uh, opportunity for steam to escape so that you don't end up with any <coughs> vegetables blowing up on you, which is not really a danger here, but I'm just saying. All right. From Camellia. Hi, friends. What's a good substitute for coffee creamer on a whole food plant-based diet? I'm particularly looking for sweetness. Uh, so for coffee creamer, so I would try making your own uh, nut milks. Nuts have a huge amount of sweetness to them, especially nuts like cashews and pecans in particular I'm thinking about. So making your own nut milk puree out of that, uh, it's going to have you know, a little bit of texture to it, but that's fine. A cashew milk in particular and pecans are also softer nuts that do tend to blend down. If you, especially if you have a very high speed blender, such as a Vitamix, you can really get them down to very, very, very smooth, um, silky, silky purees. Uh, that's what I would use. So make your own. You can even season it with spices. Uh, you can toast some cinnamon, some cloves, some nutmeg in there for your pumpkin spice, etc. Uh, you can add just a little bit of actual heat in the form of just a pinch of cayenne, which I always find is just makes everything, lifts things up and makes them more interesting. So that's what I would suggest. Uh, also soaking nuts in uh, with a little bit of citrus juice uh, can help reduce some of the phytic acid in there as well as uh, sort of round out the sweetness of it. Um, <coughs> you know, coffee creamers. Uh, all milk has lactic acid in it, and so the sweetness of the milk is somewhat pared down or sort of met by that lactic acidity. Uh, so when making something that lacks an acid, like a, like a nut, adding a little, just a couple of drops of lemon juice in there even is a nice way to sort of bring those flavors together. Cool. 
from Sarah V. What's my uh, favorite way to cook a mushroom dish? So I just, my favorite way to cook mushrooms is just tear them. Uh, use a blend of mushrooms first and foremost. So most grocery stores now sell a blend of cremini's, oyster, and shiitakes, <clears throat> which I find to be a really good blend. So I like to tear those apart so they have some nice rusticity to them. Uh, the cremini's cut, those don't rip quite as well. So I use butter in my cooking. I use oil in my cooking. I use a lot of shallots and garlic uh, with uh, with mushrooms. And I'll just saute them. I'll add them into very, very hot oil or brown butter. So the butter is as hot as it can get, <clears throat> as well as it already has some nuttiness to it. Throw the mushrooms in. I'll put the shallots and garlic in and around that so it's all cooking at the same time. I will add my salt once I've tossed them for the first time, and then I will finish them with uh, an egregious amount of herbs. And with my herbs, with mushrooms, I almost always include mint. <coughs> Excuse me. I almost always include mint. Mint is, uh, to me, one of the very best of the herbs. People think of it as just that thing that garnishes uh, your inedible garnish on your dessert. Like, no, 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 no. Anybody that's ever grown mint knows that the only way to deal with mint is to eat it all the time in everything. Uh, and that's what I recommend you do. Mushrooms and mint <clears throat> are a perfect combination. Uh, mushrooms, mint, and oregano together is a really wonderful combination. And mimics an herb that grows wild in Italy, uh, in parts of California as well, called nepitella. Nepitella is often found sort of underfoot in vineyards as well as up in the Piedmont region. And you can't buy mushrooms in Piedmont without somebody, without the seller also giving you a couple of stalks of this Nepitella, which is basically a wild cross between mint and oregano. So mint, a little bit of oregano, um, some parsley in there. And so it's almost equal parts herbs and I'd say two parts mushrooms, one part herbs. That is my favorite mushroom dish. Throw that on top of some polenta. And uh, the polenta I would recommend for you, which I know you can get online, uh, is made by Somali Buntu farmers here in Maine. Maine, cold, cold Maine, has uh, a very large and growing population uh, of Somali farmers, most Somalis, and uh, many of them farmers. And there have been some really incredible efforts uh, behind behind them that they, well that they have led uh, and that are heavily supported by the community here about uh, farming crops that are familiar to them and one of the things that they grow is this corn polenta sold by Maine Grains um, and it, it won a Good Food Award uh, recently so I know it's available online uh, if you go to mainegrains.com. Uh, this is not actually the Somalian boot of corn, but there is another, there is one that's made by them, just not this label of it. Um, cook this polenta up, and polenta no longer is just a uh, a bulk commodity starch for your meal. It becomes the main attraction. <clears throat> Even when just cooked in water, just as is, the polenta is so tasty, it is so good, it is so worthy of our dollars. This is not cheap. I think it's about $14 as opposed to the store-bought brand, which is $2. But the difference between something that is really worth eating, really worth supporting, a really great story behind it, and every bite is like, oh my God, polenta can be this? 
And then you throw those mushrooms that I just talked about on top of that. Oh, man. Yep. This is good stuff. This is what food should be. It should have a story. It should be supporting far more people than just the person whose body it goes into. It should be healthy. And well, that dish I just described is all of those things. So reach out to them. Maingrains.com. Check that out. And then when you're when you're sauteing your mushrooms, throw in your, your mint and your oregano. Cheers. All right. Uh, I logged on just a few minutes late. Did you cover if how to grill eggplant from Marsha? No, we didn't. Uh, but with eggplant, you can do it a couple of ways. One of which is that I uh, will roast that whole down in the embers of a charcoal grill. Uh, I will prick it just a couple of times with the tip of a knife to release the steam. Will it burn? Yes, it will. But that whole eggplant then gets peeled. Once it just begins to deflate, it's done. Pull it out. Peel off that outer skin. You're left with that just hull of wonderful, smoky, rich eggplant. Puree that up into a baba ganoush style thing or just chop it up with a knife as I like better so it leaves some texture to it. You can make hummus out of that with like adding tahini, etc. Or sort of peel it off with your fingers once it's cool enough to touch into long, thin strips. Mix that with some sauteed onions and bell peppers. Throw on some uh, sherry vinegar and some olive oil and you've got... Um, a, a Spanish, sort of a version of a Spanish dish called escalivada, E-S-C-A-V, escalivada, V-A-D-A. -A. Um, sorry, I still have COVID brain. Um, is just a wonderful, wonderful way to eat that. Uh, can you grill it in, in strips? Yeah, so cut it lengthways, as I like better. Uh, just, it's easier to do. Uh, also, you're going to have less surface area to grill. If you cut it all into rounds, you end up with a... a grill that's completely covered and it just all it's harder to do so i cut it top to bottom into long thin steaks which is the way to do it i salt it then uh, for just about five ten minutes allow it to draw out some of that moisture pat it dry pretty well with paper towels brush it with oil and then grill it you can of course marinate it etc uh, but the key is to salt it just a few minutes to dry out some of that surface moisture draw out some of that surface moisture and then pat it off uh, so that you get some nice grill marks and some sort of structural integrity to the eggplant. Cheers. There you go. All right. From Kathy M. Again. Hey, friend. And this will be the last question. Do I use an Instapot? If so, suggestions I have for using the IP when on a plant-based diet. Uh, so I don't use an Instapot. I don't uh, use a slow cooker as well. Uh, so I don't really have any, any suggestions on that, uh, but in terms of using it on a plant-based diet, I think this is the very, uh, I, I think just sort of the broader, more general principles of the plant-based diet apply the same when you're using an Instapot. Uh, from what I understand, an Instapot is basically uh, sort of a a, a slow cooker that has a couple of different functions that allow you to apply different levels of heat. Uh, and so you can do a couple more things, a couple more integrated uh, cook styles, but I really, I don't have any, <laughs> any real insight into this. I'm sorry, just because I'm, I'm not familiar with the technology, but uh, all the principles of whole food plant-based cooking, I don't think change when using the Instapot. So. All right, friends, it is, just after three o'clock here, my time, my little kindergartner is arriving here home. 
anytime now. And I just wanted to say how much I appreciate you. I appreciate you spending some of your morning or afternoon with me. And I really appreciate you being a part of this Ruby family. We've got a couple of exciting events coming up. I think I'm doing a whole grains event with you next in a couple of weeks. And then we'll probably be doing some, um, some holiday stuff coming up as we start getting towards the entertaining holidays. Fun and exciting. But as always, I hope that you will put some gratitude, love, and kindness into whatever cooking you're doing because we here at Ruby are very much grateful for you joining us. Thanks. Cheers. Bon appetit.